Thank you so much to Clifford and the team for leading us so faithfully in worship. If you have your Bibles, uh, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 11. Uh, we're taking a short break in our series to First Timothy, and we're going to look at uh, five verses this morning uh, for our help and encouragement. Uh, Matthew 11, verse 1 to 6, but really verse 2 to 6, but let's read it together if you have your Bibles with you. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And, he, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And you so find the reading of God's word may reform our lives to truth. Let's pray again together. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning with the assurance that your law is perfect, able to revive our souls, that your testimonies are sure, able to make wise the simple, your precepts are right, able to rejoice the heart, that your commandments are pure, enabling to enlighten our eyes, that your rules are true and righteous altogether. And it's with this assurance that we come and ask that you would allow your word to have its way with us this morning, that your word would meet us in our need, and that in so doing we would see you and your provision, your grace, your goodness, your faithfulness, and that we would lean upon you in all that we say, think, and do. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. May I suggest to you, the greatest men and women struggle with doubt. When death robs us, when grief shatters us, when sickness ravages us, when problems burden us, it's easy to have questions. In fact, you could even say it's almost natural to doubt God. But, but there's even more to it. When, when temptations overcome us, when sin enslaves us, when closeness with God is removed from us, when darkness of the soul envelops us, it's easy to, to start asking questions. It's almost natural to start doubting our own salvation. Realize whether by trial or temptation, whether by suffering or sin, our faith is often rattled by doubt. In fact, ask Guinness, put it this way, what is doubt but faith suffering by mistreatment and malnutrition? Mistreatment by affliction and suffering and hardship and malnutrition by our own sin and waywardness. See, the greatest men and women of faith struggle with doubt. Let me introduce you to three Johns. The first John, John the storyteller, John Bunyan, said this, Of all temptations I ever met within my life, to question the being of God and the truth of his gospel is the worst. 
and worse to be born. When this temptation comes, it takes my girdle from me and removes the foundation from under me. From under me. Did you hear that John Bunyan, the, the great storyteller of Pilgrim's Progress, one of the greatest stories ever written, struggled with doubt? Or consider John the Reformer, right? John Calvin. He said this, Surely, while we teach that faith ought to be certain and assured, we cannot imagine any certainty that is not tinged with doubt or any assurance that is not assailed by some anxiety. On the other hand, we say that believers are perpetual are in perpetual conflict with their own unbelief. Again, did you hear that? John the Calvin, right? The great reformer, the, the granddaddy of reformed theology, struggled and recognized the reality of doubt. Our passage points us to the third John, John the Baptist. Verse 11, Jesus says that there is no one greater than John. No prophet has ever been as great as John. Yet here is the greatest prophet who has ever lived, and he's struggling with doubt. Verse 3, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Remember, this is the man who in John 1.21 boldly declared when he saw Jesus, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Remember, this is the man who said in John 1.32 that Jesus, that he saw the Spirit of God descend on Jesus like a dove. Remember, this is the man who recognized in John 3.31 that Jesus indeed is from above and he is above all. Oh, realize in our passage we see this great man who saw great things, who said great things, now has a great question, now he has great doubts. The point is the greatest men and women among us struggle with doubt. If these great Johns struggle with doubt, how much so for average Joes like us? Now, let me just say, some would disagree here. Uh, many older commentators deny that John is struggling with doubt here. Obviously, I disagree with that interpretation, uh, along with many commentators like Tertullian, Henry Clark, uh, Carson King, Hagner, Morris, etc., etc. Here we see that John is struggling with doubt. In, in fact, John is very much like his predecessor, Elijah, or his forerunner, Elijah. Remember how Elijah saw great things and did great things for God, yet when revival didn't break out as he expected, John like Elijah, or Elijah like John, struggled with doubt. He struggled with discouragement. In fact, let me suggest to you, John's doubt and discouragement is recorded for us, for our encouragement and for our help. Uh, one commentator seems, says this, it seems most likely that Matthew recorded John's struggles with doubt, not to condemn John, but to encourage subsequent disciples whose faith would be tested by hardship. Now, now how is John's discouragement, how is John's doubt an encouragement to us? Well, if a great man like this had doubt, then you're not alone. If this great prophet is, is struggling with doubt, then, then you're not some weird Christian when you have questions. 
then you're not the worst of all Christians if, if you have doubt. No, doubt is something that occurs in the life of a believer. If we're honest with ourselves, we need to recognize that. There's a danger some Christians fall into. On the one hand, some embrace doubt as a badge of honor. They view certainty as pride and view doubt as humility. But the problem with that is it leads to some form of unsettled mysticism where where they're unclear where the Bible is clear. Others, however, avoid doubt as if it's the worst sin ever. They demonize doubt and demand spiritual perfection. And that leads to this unobtainable perfectionism. This idea that you have to be perfect. And this leads to to pride on the one hand because you think you're perfect. Or or despair on the other hand when you realize you're not. But, But see, the great thing about the Bible is it meets us in our needs. It meets us with our struggles. Jesus in particular meets us, with us, in our doubt. And, and although he is firm, yes, he comes with gentle, gentleness and, and tenderness, as he does here with John. In fact, may I suggest to you in our passage, we're given certain tools of how to deal with our doubt. Three things this morning, the character, the cause, and the cure for doubt. Firstly, the character of doubt. See, if the greatest men and women struggle with doubt, then then we need to know what doubt actually is. We need to know if doubt is any good and if it's not, and we need to know if doubt is, in fact, the unforgivable sin. Now, now, to correctly understand the character of doubt, we need to understand three things. Firstly, we need to know that doubt is not the absence of faith. See, in our day and age, uh, we see those Uh, characterized by doubt as typically the atheists or the agnostics, people who who doubt the claims of Christ, who who reject the claims of Christianity. In our day and age, those who doubt are typically marked as unbelievers. That's not the doubt we see in Scripture. When John asks the question, are you the one who is to come, he hasn't stopped believing in God Or in the Christ. No, he still looks forward to the Christ. He still looks forward to God. But for reasons we'll discuss later, John is questioning what he believes. John is struggling with the weakness of his faith. John has faith. It's just faltering. John is basically asking this. Should I continue to believe what I believe or should I believe something else? Now, to understand this, Matthew 14 proves helpful. Perhaps you remember that account where Jesus walks on the water, and we see that not only Jesus, but Peter walks on the water. He looks to Jesus and and with faith walks with Jesus on the water. Yet, if you remember, he takes his eyes off of Jesus. He, He gets distracted, and so he starts sinking, and he cries out, Lord, save me. And we're told that Jesus reaches out, he he grabs him and and saves him. And do you remember what Jesus tells him? Matthew 14, 31, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? See, doubt is not the absence of faith, but little faith. It is weak and wavering faith that believes in Jesus, yet allows the struggles and the distractions and the hardships and the challenges to blur our vision of Christ. See, John in our passage is struggling with weak and wavering faith. 
And when we understand this, when we understand that our faith is often weak and faltering, it helps us to see that, that doubt is a struggle that all of us have. Doubt is a necessary struggle at times to wrestle through. So doubt is not the absence of faith. Secondly, doubt is not the ideal for the Christian. We need to realize that doubt is not the ideal for the Christian. In verse 6, Jesus gently yet tenderly rebukes John's doubt. And he rebukes our doubt. Right? He says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. In other words, blessed is the one who is, led, who is not led astray by his doubt, who, who does not allow doubt to, over, to ensnare him, to overburden him. Blessed is the one who, who returns to Christ even with his doubts. James 1 verse 5 to 6 informs us that doubt is not the desire of God for his people. It says that if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously with, without reproach. And it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. In verse 8, he actually says that the one who doubts is double-minded. He's unstable in all his ways. In fact, at various points in the gospel, Jesus tells his disciples to pray and to pray without doubting. For example, when he curses the fig tree, Jesus says this in Matthew 21, 21. He says, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to this fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive it if you have faith. Now, why do you need faith? Because doubt ultimately is the enemy of faith. Doubt robs us of joy, of peace, of happiness, of, of blessing. It's not the ideal for the Christian. Listen to Spurgeon on this. Doubt discovers difficulties which it never solves. It creates hesitancy, despondency, despair. Its progress is the decay of comfort, the, the death of peace. I realize, dear friend, that although doubt is, is at times to be expected natural, it's not the ideal. This isn't what God desires for you and me. Thirdly, we need to note that doubt is not the unforgivable sin. When Jesus says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me, he is not only rebuking John and us for our doubt, but he's actually exhorting us to persevere. See, as with all the Beatitudes, this Beatitude functions as a means of, of exhortation. Jesus exhorts us to overcome our doubt, to, in, to turn from our doubt. As with all sins, we must recognize it, repent of it, and, and reject doubt. Which means, doesn't it, that there is a way out of your doubt. There is a way out of the despair that doubt brings. There is joy for those who wrestle in their doubt. Why? Because doubt is not the unforgivable sin. No, unbelief is, but not doubt. One author put it this way, unbelief says, I cannot believe. Unbelief says, I won't believe. Doubt is honesty, unbelief, obstinacy. Doubt is looking for light, unbelief is content with darkness. 
see unbelief, this, this willful rejection of Christ is the only unforgivable sin. But not, not doubt. Not weak, faltering faith. Realize it's not your faith in your faith that saves you. No, it's the object, Jesus, the object of your faith that saves you. And know this, dear friend, Jesus, the great object of your faith, he approaches those who struggle with doubt with tenderness, with grace. Do you remember doubting Thomas, John 20? Do you remember how Jesus dealt with him? Jesus didn't humiliate him or chastise him. No, Jesus met him in his weakness. Jesus pointed him to his side. He said, touch, see the scars. In other words, Jesus opened himself up to Thomas and his doubts. Jesus meets him there. Remember, the Bible says, Jude 22, have mercy on those who doubt. In Romans 14, it says, welcome anyone who is weak in faith. Why? Because our Savior has mercy on those who doubt. Our Savior welcomes those who are weak in faith. And so if that's you this morning, then John is a great example to you. He he didn't keep his doubts to himself. He he didn't allow his doubts to to overburden him and smother him. No, he, he went directly to Jesus with his doubts, with his questions. I understand that one of the rules that some lifeguard stations have is this, if in doubt, go. That is to say, if you see something and you're not sure about it, if you can't make sense of it, don't sit back and wonder, no, go. And the same applies for us. If you struggle with doubt, if you have questions, go to Jesus. If you have questions about me and my, my theology, I hope it's all right. I, I imagine you'd come to me, right? I hope you have questions for me. Or in the same way, if you have questions about God, doubts, go to Christ. Matthew twelve twenty reminds us that a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench. See, he is gentle and kind. So we see then that doubt is not the absence of faith. It is is not the ideal for the Christian. It is not the unforgivable sin. So what is doubt? Well, it's weak and wavering faith. It is a failure to see Christ amidst all the distractions and the despairs of life. But but that's the character of God. Let's look at and consider the cause of doubt. The cause of doubt. To be fair... Uh, We could probably list a number of reasons for doubt, uh, but I think we can simplify them perhaps in two, two reasons from the text, and that is unexpected disappointments that flow ultimately from unfulfilled expectations. Firstly, unexpected disappointments. Realize John's ministry, by all accounts, was popular and successful, yet it ends apparently in disaster. Not only did John draw large crowds of people to himself, not only did he baptize many people, but John prepared the way for the Messiah. He pointed people to the long-awaited arrival of God to intervene. By all expectations, John's ministry, therefore, should have brought revival. It should have brought change. Despite all of this, reality hits. John finds himself in prison, and it seems as if God hasn't actually intervened. It seems that revival hasn't actually broken out. 
John, who, who freely preached in the wilderness, is now confined to, to a small cell, unable to preach. And his ministry apparently is in tatters. It doesn't make sense then that John doubts. Surely we would agree doubt often flows bitterly from disappointments and, and discouragements. When you lose that loved one, when you face that disease, when you experience that injustice, when you endure that trial, do we not often respond by saying, God, what gives? God, where are you? What are you doing? Perhaps even the inner atheist comes out and we ask, is there even a God? Surely we understand, therefore, that unexpected disappointments often cause doubt. Not only do unexpected disappointments cause doubt, but I would argue unfulfilled expectations cause doubt. Unfulfilled expectations. Understand this. Uh, turn with me quickly to Matthew 3. Uh, in this chapter, we see uh, John's expectations for his ministry. Uh, John, or Matthew 3, verse 7 to 8, it says this. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping repentance, he says. Verse 10, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Or look at verse 11 to 12. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn up with unquenchable fire. See, John preached a message of repentance and judgment. And he expected the Messiah to come to pour out wrath, to pay and to judge iniquity. Yet when John hears about Jesus' ministry, he doesn't hear a message of judgment only, but a message of mercy. In fact, John understood that part of the ministry of the Messiah was to set the captive free. Yet here is John stuck in prison. Surely we can see why John asked the question, are you the one who is to come? See, beloved of God, when we understand this, we understand that unfulfilled expectations often cause doubt. We might not have said it, but perhaps you've thought it. God, you say you are good, yet why are you letting this happen? God, you, you say you'll never leave me or forsake me, yet why do I feel alone? God, you say you are just and holy, yet why are the wicked prospering? Have we all not experienced these, these unfulfilled expectations? Uh, Proverbs 13, 12 is quite right where it says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. That is to say, as one commentator says, unfulfilled expectations leave a person depressed and discouraged. See, dashed hopes often leave us crushed under the heap of questions. Have we often not found ourselves with those same questions? So far then, we've looked at the what question. We've We've seen the character of doubt. We've, we've looked at the why question, some of the causes of doubt, but we have to look at the how question. How do we 
deal with our doubt? How do we uh, find remedy for doubt? Or what is the cure for doubt? In, in verse 4 to 6, we see Jesus reply to John's doubts. And Jesus tells the disciples of John to, to go to him. And he says this, go and tell John what you hear and see. That is to say, there is something John must hear and there's something John must see. I want to suggest to you that there are at least two cures to the problem of doubt that Jesus offers. The first cure is this, listen to the word of God. Listen to the word of God. When Jesus was tempted by Satan, how did he reply? It is written, it is written, it is written. And here, when the temptation, the doubt is there, Jesus essentially also responds with Scripture. Now, he doesn't explicitly say it is written, but his answer is filled with Scripture, particularly with references to Isaiah. Uh, Jesus here alludes to Isaiah 29, 35, and 61, but for time's sake, uh, let's consider Isaiah 35, verse 4. Look where it says there, say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance and with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Now this verse must have shaped John's ministry. It must have shaped his expectation. John, no doubt, probably preached this very text. He called people to, to behold the recompense of God that's about to arrive. Yet look how verse 5 carries on. Look how this section moves, and this is the section that John, that Jesus alludes to. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. I compare that with what Jesus says in verse 5 of Matthew 11. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. Do you see what Jesus is doing? Jesus is saying, yes, I am the Messiah. Yes, there will be judgment. There will be the recompense of God, but there will also be grace. There will also be abundant mercy. See, Jesus here is using Scripture to remedy John's doubt. We saw earlier that, that one of the reasons why John doubts is this unfulfilled expectation. Well, here by alluding to Scripture, Jesus corrects this expectation. And what a wonderful lesson this is for us. Our temptations, our struggles, our doubts need to be answered with the Word of God. See, see, the scriptures are a vital means of grace that strengthen weak faith, that uphold trembling hands, as it were. I, I mean, think of Psalm 1. We know Psalm 1. Uh, tell me, what's the result of the man who delights in the law of the Lord? What's the, the result of the one who meditates on the law of God day and night? Verse 3 and 4 tells us he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruits in season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. The point is this, the person who is in God's word, the person who meditates upon and rests in it, that person knows God's peace. That person knows the assurance of security. That person knows rest because he knows he's God. I don't think it would be wrong to say that the reason 
why so many have a weak and wavering and doubting faith is because so many do not know the Scriptures. See, the cure to doubt is to listen to the Word of God, to remember God's perfections, who He is. It's to remember and obey His precepts. It is to take hold of His promises. It is to rest in the security of His plans, all of which are revealed in His Word. His Word needs to guide our expectations and our view of this life. And so to cure doubt, listen to the Word of God. Secondly, we need to cure doubt by looking to the works of God. Jesus doesn't tell the disciples, just listen to something. He says, look. He's saying, look at what has been fulfilled. Look at what the Messiah has accomplished. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor hear good news. These are all signs that the Messiah has arrived. These are signs that God has intervened, that restoration has begun. Jesus is pointing out that the effects of the fall are being reversed. And look particularly at the end of verse 5. The poor have good news preached to them. What is this good news? It's the good news that God in Christ has arrived to save. Those suffering under the effects of sin, those suffering under the kingdom of darkness, now have hope, now have salvation in Jesus. Dear friends, realize when we are faced with doubt, It is good for us to be reminded of what God has done. When John was defeated and dejected in prison, when he was despairing with these unexpected disappointments and unfulfilled expectations, Jesus tells John, look at what God is doing. Dear friends, when you are defeated and discouraged and dejected, when you are discouraged by disappointed by disappointments, look at what God has done. God has not left you in your sin. No, He has sent you His Son as your Savior who has entered into our world. He's borne our sin. He's endured our sufferings. He paid for our sin. He lived for our righteousness. In Him, we are forgiven and reconciled to God. We're not alone. But look at what he is doing. He's he's not just left you in this world and in your suffering and in your trouble. No, he's given you his spirit, who's your sanctifier, who fills your heart with love and joy and peace, who who is your sealed guarantee of glory to come. Look at what God is doing. See, See, the works of the Son and the Spirit are all meant to remind us that this is our God. Look at what He's done to make us His people. That in this world, with all its destruction, destruction and discouragement, we have God as our God. And the cure to doubt is to look and listen to this God. To look to him as our God in and through his Son and his Spirit. Uh, Thomas Brooks, the Puritan, in one of his treatises on doubt says this, Till a Christian's eyes are open to see God as his portion, his heart will be full of doubts and perplexities. 
Oh, Christians, he says, till you come to see God to be your portion, your doubts will lie with you, rise up with you, walk with you, talk with you, till they make your life a very hell. Now, where does Brooks get that from? Well, he gets it from Psalm 73. Doesn't he? Do you remember how Asaph stumbled almost in his faith? Do you remember how he questioned God when he saw the wickedness of the, or the prosperity of the wicked? How he even almost turned away from God. And what was it that saved Asaph? What was it that cured him from his doubts? Yes, it was the fact that he saw the end of the wicked, that the end will perish, the, the wicked will perish. But, but more importantly, Asaph was reminded of who his God is. He was reminded that God is his portion. Uh, Psalm 73, 21 to 26 says this, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in my heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. Why? For you hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsels and afterward you will receive me to glory. Then we have these beautiful rhetorical questions. Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Dear friend, do you know something about this? Is your flesh falling apart because of disease and sickness? Is your heart falling apart because of grief and pain? Well, if it is, echo these words of Asaph. God is the strength of your heart. God is your portion forever. And dear friends, it's in the Son and the Spirit that this God is our God and our portion. It is the Word and the work of God in the Son and the Spirit, that we can enjoy this God and have Him as our portion. And therefore, when, when doubts assail you, when questions rattle you, when afflictions overwhelm you, when sin undermines you, lean upon your God. Look to his word that recounts of all his mercy and his grace, his promises, his plans, his perfections. And look to his works that remind you of his commitment. That he who gave his son will give you far more. He who gave you his spirit will keep you. See, if the greatest men and women struggle with doubt, then be sure you will have seasons of doubt. And when that struggle comes, dear friends, be sure to cling to your God. Be sure to keep your eyes on Him as your portion and your help and your strength. Let's pray. I want to pray. I want to close by praying a prayer that John Stott prayed on doubting. Pray with me if you will. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for your sympathetic understanding towards those who have doubts and difficulties. And we pray for them today. Stir into serious concern those who are paralyzed by apathy. Shine into the minds of those who doubt your truth and love. Arrest those who are undermined to live their own life in their own way and break into their self-centeredness with your liberating power. 
Give to all of us the courage to lay aside our pride, our prejudice, our fear, and help us to seek you with our whole heart. Then, Lord Jesus, we will humbly pray, fulfill your promises that he who seeks finds, and that those who knock the door will be opened. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.